This morning, because it's the first day of Advent, as we've seen with the lighting of the candle, we're going to start a series about Advent. And Advent, of course, is the time where we remember the coming of Christ. Advent means to come to. And Christ came to us because that was God's plan. Getting ready for Christ, this is what we're going to look at this morning, particularly in the opening chapter of Luke, getting ready for Christ, seeing how, according to Luke, the story begins. Luke's story, like all good stories, has a beginning and an ending. The beginning is the arrival of Jesus himself. And of course, Luke goes to considerable detail to tell us uh, the arrival of Jesus in Jesus' infancy narrative. We hear about Gabriel talking to Mary. You're going to be the mother of the Savior. And then the birth. The wise men, that's actually in uh, Matthew. But we hear in, in Luke, we get about the shepherds and the angel choir singing and so forth. That's how... The story in Luke begins. It ends with the complementary event to Christ, as it were, coming down. Because at the end of Luke, he goes back up. We get what's called the ascension. And Luke's the only one of the four gospel writers that tells us with any specific detail about the ascension. So in between... Those two pictures we have on the screen, we've got Christ's entire earthly ministry. And what we want to ponder this morning is how Luke tells us about God setting up for the first one, the image there on the left. And here is what he tells us. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years." Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. We're going to see that this incense thing is key for this scene. To enter the temple and to burn the incense. And and the, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Do note, if you're an exegetical detail hound, he uses the word incense three times in as many sentences. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, the angel, and, he, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name, you shall call his name John. 
And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Note that word, turn. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? There's a bit of, he's a bit skeptical here. How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak, to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. That's as far as we're going to go this morning. How does the story begin? All of this is about God getting Israel ready and indirectly getting the whole world ready for Christ to come. How does this story begin? We'll observe four things God sets in place. It's like he arranges the furniture for a special event. The story begins first with worship. Why, here's something to ask, why Zechariah was in the temple? He was in the temple, Luke goes to trouble to explain to us because it was his turn. His division of the priesthood was on duty as it were. Perhaps, I don't know the exact background here, but the different divisions apparently had times of the year when it was their turn. And on this particular day, they took, cast lots to see who would be the one that would go in and offer the incense, do the incense offering. It was his turn. So he's in there offering up this incense to the Lord. Now note the backdrop that Luke paints this incense worship against. There are things going on which show that Zechariah and Israel are not in an altogether ideal situation. It's an unfinished situation. Not everything is right. No one in this room here would say, everything in my life is finally right. And not everything was right in Zechariah. Not everything was right for Israel. Notably, for example, 
He's offering up this incense in the face of foreign rule. Rome still rules this land, and they have their little puppet king, Herod. He wasn't even a king, a real king. He wasn't descended from the tribe of Judah. It's extremely debatable whether he was even Jewish, but he was sure in control. Eventually, he would order the death of John, who was coming out of this story. In the face of foreign rule, in the face of a situation that's wrong but hasn't moved, what does Zechariah do? He lights the incense. When that incense ascended, it was referred to as a fragrant incense. It was, it was fragrant to the Lord. It was pleasing to the Lord. In the face of a situation that hadn't moved, Zechariah says, God, you are worthy. That's not all that was going on. He did this in the face of something closer to home, closer to his own home, closer to his own heart, that he and his wife had lived their entire life without ever having children. And well, the text even tells us Elizabeth was barren, and now not only was barrenness the barrier, but age had become the barrier. So there's a double barrier. And in the face of that double barrier and that double disappointment, what does Zechariah do? He offers the incense. It's an act of faithful worship. Just think of that incense. I like the picture here. You can get a lot on Google Images if you look around. The incense ascending. The incense rising. It says, God, Holy One of Israel, Herod's still in place, but you're worthy. God, Holy One of Israel, I don't know why. Elizabeth and I don't know why. We've never had kids, but you are worthy. I'm going to be a faithful worshiper. You know, if we go back to the Old Testament, there's different kinds of worship. There's this spontaneous, exuberant kind that charismatics tend to like this. We see that with Miriam at the Exodus. She grabs a tambourine and starts dancing all over the place and singing in a very exuberant way. We get that in 2 Samuel with King David uh, when they bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem spontaneous, exuberant, uh, outrageous, radical praise. But parallel with those kinds of examples, and those are not the only two examples in the Bible of spontaneous, exuberant praise. Parallel with that, there's another kind of worship, and that's routine offerings, like this one of incense. The, The law of Moses, notably in the book of Exodus, gives all kinds of uh, instructions and directives. And the priests were supposed to do the incense offering every morning and every evening. It's in Exodus chapter 30. As the sun came up, the incense was supposed to come up. And as the sun went down, the incense was supposed to still be going up. It was a formal, routine, ordinary, everyday or twice everyday kind of worship. Church traditions that are more oriented to, to liturgy 
They still do this. Now, whatever you do with the question of liturgy, is that the right kind of worship? Let me point you to a verse in the Psalms, maybe kind of a bridge between the spontaneous-oriented kind of worship that we charismatics tend to favor and the liturgical kind. It's in Psalm 141. David says, Let my prayer be counted as incense. We can do that. We can say, okay, Lord, here's my prayer. It's not a perfect prayer, but it's my prayer. And I'm asking you to count this prayer as incense. Let's be, OCC, let's be, pardon me for keep breaking eye contact because I need to see what's happening over there, so just bear with me. Let's be a Zechariah church. There's another good image. That's us. That needs to be us, being a Zechariah church. In the face of our Herods, in the face of our situations that we say, Lord, this thing hasn't moved. Big, ugly, opposition, scowling, anti-God King Herod who likes to chop prophets' heads off. He's still there. That situation in my job, in my family, in my health, in my whatever, there's still this Herod It was there a year ago. It was there two years ago. I don't understand, Lord. And maybe all God's asking at the moment is to say, be faithful. Are you with me here? Am I connecting? Are you getting this? Be faithful. Keep that incense going up in the face of your disappointments. Maybe for some of you, it's it's a childlessness thing. There's few things that hit harder that harder than that. We'll come back to it in a second. Morning and evening. Incense rising. There's a famous Canadian book called Barometer Rising. If you grew up in Canada, you have to read that one in high school. It's a very interesting story. Well, I'm going to write a book someday, God willing. Incense Rising. I like that title. It sounds like it's, it would hook people's interest. Now... The story begins. This is all about how does the story begin. God is moving the furniture to get everything ready for the arrival of Christ. The first thing he does is he providentially arranges that there's worship going on. He providentially arranges there are faithful people in Israel. Later on when John grows up, you wouldn't maybe know it from some of his preaching. He doesn't seem to think that there's a great amount of righteousness going on. He's very, very direct and critical of the establishment in Jerusalem. But there, there is a righteous remnant that God has preserved. People like Zechariah and his wife and Mary and Joseph. The story begins with worship. Let's move on. The story begins with weakness. We're told that this godly woman who is well on in years, has lived all those many years in obedience to the commandments. And what's her reward? No kids. So what's up with this? It doesn't seem to make sense. Everything is not clicking their way. Well, interestingly, and I'm sure... Zechariah and Elizabeth were keenly aware of this and perhaps even took comfort in it. Elizabeth's not the first woman in the story of God's people that faced this. Abraham's wife, Sarah, 
Isaac's wife, Rebecca, and Jacob's wife, Rachel, had something in common. They had the promise they would be the matriarchs of a people more numerous than the stars, and none of the three of them could get pregnant. So what's up with that? Now, of course, obviously, eventually, they all did get pregnant. But it was a battle. It took time. There was the painful waiting. Now, perhaps the most poignant of the Old Testament barrenness stories is one that has some intriguing parallels with Zechariah and Elizabeth. That's in First, uh, first Samuel, the first couple of chapters, The woman's name, the mother's name, who was not a mother yet, was Hannah. She becomes the mother of the prophet Samuel. And Samuel goes on to become the forerunner of King Jesus. He's sort of a prophetic kingmaker. And it's Samuel that God uses to work behind the scenes to usher King Saul after he had just completely disqualified himself. He was disobedient. He compromised in all different ways. And God had to use and did use Samuel as like a kingmaker to usher King Saul off the stage so God could bring in the man after his own heart, King David. Forerunner of King David. He's a prophet. And his mother faced the barrenness barrier, his, the circumstances surrounding his birth were the circumstances of weakness. Now Elizabeth that we're looking at today, she will, will be, of course, the mother of John. Maybe you see where we're going. And John's going to be the forerunner of King Jesus. As I sometimes say, if that all is an accident, I'm a Buddhist. There's, there's no, this is God setting things in place. It's, it's profound how this works. If you like art, you might recognize Mark Chagall. That's a Mark Chagall painting. And that's his picture, his impression of Hannah. And read when you have a moment. Read the first couple chapters of First Samuel. It's very poignant. And the author there really captures the emotions and the, the anguish and the, the sense of disappointment and frustration of, of, of Samuel's mother, um, uh, Hannah, and she's being taunted by her husband's other wife, Peninnah, and I think that's Chagall trying to represent the, the rival wife in the background, kind of scowling at Hannah. And it came out of pain. This whole thing it came out of it came out of weakness, and that's where this story begins. But here's where we need to turn the corner. We need to realize God is not bothered by our weakness because it magnifies his strength. God says to Paul, my power is made perfect in your weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, that's where Paul, remember he had the famous thorn in the flesh and people still debate, to, even to this day, what precisely was the thorn? And we kind of don't really know. There's theories out there. What we do know is God didn't take it away. Paul was praying things, presumably like, you know, I could serve you better if I didn't have this thorn. And it sounds like God had to say to Paul, you're trying to serve me out of strength, Paul. But my strength is made perfect in your weakness. 
So go ahead and embrace that weakness. Paul wasn't the first one to struggle with this. In Exodus, God commissions Moses. He says to Moses, you're going to go confront Pharaoh and you're going to command him in my name to let Israel leave Egypt. Moses, of course, Moses, of course, protests. And he says, I can't do that because I'm slow of speech. And God's classic answer is, who made your mouth? It's an interesting scene there at that burning bush. Who makes the eye blind, says God? Who makes the ear deaf? Is it not I, the Lord? Pastorally, that is a tricky passage. I don't know totally how I would even apply it. If you want to talk further on that, come up at the end of the meeting and Al will explain it all to you. (laughs) What we can take out of it, the burning bush, who made your mouth thing, and the implication that even in some sense disability comes from God in some ultimate inscrutable way is this. We can and we need to receive even our limitations as part of the plan, as part of God's plan for us. They're somehow part of the picture. It's not an easy thing to sort out like intellectually or emotionally. But we need to receive that. Go have a look at it. Don't be afraid of your weaknesses. God has chosen weakness to manifest his, to magnify his strength. Moses, who made your mouth? Moses, who put that pavement in place? So the people would be amazed when the, the flowers came cr- cracking up through the surface of the road. He chooses the weak to shame the strong. So give God your weaknesses. Velma has warned me against you taking selfies. (laughs) Give God your weaknesses. Can we agree on that one this morning? Whatever we do with the question, well, why do I even have weaknesses, Lord, if you're able to do everything? Why was Hannah barren all those years? I mean, uh, Elizabeth barren all those years. Okay, we don't have quick, glib, clever explanations on some of those questions. Okay, fair enough. Keep lighting the incense. That's how we get ready. And in the meantime, let's give God our weaknesses. Let him use them. Let him use our weakness. The story begins, thirdly, with a word from God. Velma and I moved here in 2005. And right away, because it was a new church for us, we spent our whole church years, adult life, at a church, in Gateway Church in Canada. And we started picking up the just by reference and memory and allusion to uh, prophetic words that had come to this church and to salt and light and so forth over the years, the go to worship, pardon me, not worship, the go to Europe word, um, leave, it's time to leave the Shire. We started picking up on these things because they had been, what the leaders and everybody thought were, they believed were direction giving, uh, perspective giving 
leadings from the Lord. Here's, how, here's what you need to be concentrating on. Here's what you need to be focusing on. And Gabriel gives Zechariah a direction-setting word applying to Zechariah's eventually-to-be-born son. John, we're told, is going to go on in ministry in the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah, if you go back to First and Second Kings, he appears about halfway through First Kings and then in the early chapters of Second Kings and then he ascends up into heaven. His ministry, I suspect, more than any of the prophets, the only person I think in the Old Testament that does as many miracles as Elijah would be Moses. It would be interesting to tot up who did the more. I don't know who would win, as it were. Elijah did many miracles. On more than one occasion, he called fire down from heaven. Here's at the, the Mount Carmel when they having the, the contest between uh, Elijah representing Yahweh and the Baal prophets representing Baal. And the fire comes down on Elijah's offering, showing Yahweh to be the true God. And that's not the first time he could do fire, fireworks, as it were. There was once some enemy soldiers came to arrest him, and he roasted him. He just called fire down out of heaven. <laughs> he didn't mess with Elijah. So when Gabriel says to Zechariah, your eventual son whom you'll name John, filled with the spirit before he's even born, he's never to touch strong drink and all of this. Spirit and power of Elijah. Zechariah is probably thinking, and if we just had those words to go on, we'd think, aha, I know what's going to happen. John the Baptist is going to be another big time miracle worker up there with Moses and Elijah. However, when we read the gospel accounts of John's ministry, he was strong on prophetic preaching, calling people to baptism, confronting the leaders, both the religious leaders and um, Herod. He was strong on those things, but we don't see miracles. So, if miracles, signs and wonders, all kinds of fireworks are not the Elijah link... (laughs) What is the Elijah link? I'm going to suggest this. The Elijah link was a big turning. God didn't enable Elijah to do all his signs and wonders for the sake of doing signs and wonders. He, did, he raised a dead person at least on one occasion. He did miraculous feedings, sort of anticipating the feeding of the 5,000, or alternatively, the feeding of the 5,000 echoes Elijah. He healed the sick. He made, or he commanded it to happen, the, the shadow to go backwards on that stairway in Jerusalem when King Hezekiah was sick. I mean, this, this was high-octane power that Elijah had, that he demonstrated. He didn't do those signs and wonders for their own sake. He did them for one reason, and that was to get Israel to turn back to God. 1 Kings 18.21, Okay, Israel, if Baal's God, then serve him. If Yahweh's God, then turn and serve him. It was a turning 
big, huge, heavy, inertia-intensive ship. The captain, for some reason we don't know about, I don't know with all, the origin of this picture, has commanded the pilot to turn. And the ship is turning. Now, if I'm correct that that's a big piece, if not the main piece of the ministry and mission of Elijah, let's look at what Gabriel says about John. He says to Zechariah, his mission, John's mission, will be, quote, to turn many to the Lord, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. There is about 10 sermons in those words. Don't get scared. We're not going to be here all day. I want to suggest the Elijah link was just this. It was to bring about what we see in that photo for the people of Israel and for the people of God today. That we will be a people that know how to turn when God is saying turn. It's time to turn. It's time to turn. We need to be able to hear when God is saying that. The big turning. And here's what we can always say about the big turning. Without exception, there's never a time when this is not the heart of the matter. It's always a, it's always a turning toward God. It might be a character issue. But when it's a character issue, self-control, ruling your own spirit, whatever character issues is a broad thing. When it's a character issue, it isn't really a character issue. It's a God issue. So whatever the character issue, at the heart of it and at the heart of getting victory in it and finding life in the place of death, it's about getting into the pilot's house on the big ship and getting hold of the ship's wheel and turning. It might be a relational issue. We all know what that's like. What's it look like when you're having a relational friction with somebody to turn toward God? Maybe it's simply a matter of saying, you know what, I don't need everything in this relationship to go my way because God will be there for me. Even if in the short term I need to get treated a little unfairly or something like that, all right, all right, God knows. He'll be there for me. It's a matter of turning toward him. It might be something, not so much in our individual lives, but it might be something corporate. Us, OCC as a corporate body. What's it look like right now? November, almost December 2014, to get into the pilot's house, get hold of the ship's wheel, and turn. Let's have our Holy Spirit antennas up. Lord, what are you saying? Where do we need to turn? It's time to turn. Okay, what's the turning meant to look like? It's always a turning to God. And here's where it begins. I have another clever picture. Here it is. When you go home today, let's go home thinking this question. What's it going to look like for me right now? 
individually to lay hold of the ship's wheel. Lord, what's going on in my life? Just this, let's begin it at an individual, personal level. What's, what, what's going on? What's it going to look like, look like for me to get hold of the ship's wheel? Where do I need to turn that wheel? It's time to turn. Finally, an observation I never tire of revisiting. We're looking at how the story begins, okay? How the story begins. It begins with a priest, Zechariah. And it ends with one. Let's see how Luke plots this out. It begins with a priest who gets rebuked. There's sort of a two-sided picture we have of Zechariah in chapter 1. We're told that he was obedient to all the commandments. He was faithful and so forth. He's a man of integrity before the Lord. However, at the end of that section we read, he gets a pretty stern rebuke from Gabriel, a senior angel who lives in the presence of God. The rebuke was for not believing Gabriel's words. So the story begins, this how do we get ready question, getting ready. It begins with a priest who's rebuked. It begins with weakness. People can't have children when they long and wish to have children. We start with the rebuked priest, but the story ends with the priest who's exalted. And lifting up his hands, and lift, this is the closing words of the Gospel of Luke. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. I remember the first time I ever saw that parallel. I just about jumped out of my chair. I was sitting in the library at Providence Seminary in Winnipeg, and I saw it. The book book of Luke begins and ends with a priest. For Jesus to lift up his hands like this and to speak blessing is to portray him as the new high priest. That's what God is doing. And it raises all kinds of interesting questions. Perceptive person that knows Old Testament history is going to say, oh, hold on a jolly minute. Jesus is tribe of Judah. The priests were supposed to be from the tribe of Levi. Well, if you think that, go read Hebrews. There's two or three chapters explaining just that anomaly. And matter of fact, for those of you that are book geeks, there's a new book out now advancing the theory that the never named author of the book of Hebrews was Luke. This is a new theory that is, is gaining some acceptance. So we see someone from the tribe of Judah being brought over to inherit a role that had traditionally belonged in the tribe of Levi, a priest after the order of Melchizedek and all that. And what's he doing? This is the last glimpse the disciples have of Jesus, especially in Luke's story, and well, in all of the stories, all four gospels, the disciples jam out when Jesus is arrested, they, they vow, we'll stand by you no matter what, Jesus. 
Well, when the crunch comes, they don't stand by him no matter what, and they all scatter, and one of them denies him three times. What's the last glimpse those same people have of Christ? He doesn't go up into heaven going like this. He goes up into heaven. The Lord bless you and keep you. He's the new Aaron. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you shalom. Isn't that an amazing way for him to depart? Now there's a detail we need to draw out here. And I'm going to turn it back to Al in a moment. In the clip from Luke 1 that we read at the start of the message, here's how it ends. When Zechariah's time of service ended, he went to his home. I've got a bit of a typo there, just ignore that. When the time of his service ended, he went to his home. Now keep that part in your head. Now, Jesus goes to his home, heaven. That's where the disciples are pointing up. They're watching this happen. He goes to his home. So there's a parallel here between the first and second priests, Zechariah and Christ. They go to their home. I think that's very deliberate on Luke's part. But there's a place where the parallel becomes a divergence, and it's this. It says that Zechariah did this when his time of service ended. But Jesus' service never ends. Again, to remember Hebrews, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Let me read that again. Those are tremendous words. He's able to save completely those who come to God through him. Just ponder, absorb, percolate that word completely. Completely. What's ever going on in your life right now, this new heavenly enthroned high priest is able to save you, us, completely. That's good news. Zechariah couldn't do that. Christ can. And the reason is that when he finished his time of service, he went on serving. And he will be high priest forever because he always lives to intercede for us. Four questions to ask. Are we offering up the incense of worship? Let's be a Zechariah church. Somehow this would, I couldn't find an illustration on Google images like this, but I was, I kind of always been intrigued with the the idea of smoke of of incense coming up out of my chest, (laughs) out of my heart and going up to the Lord. Maybe it's almost meant to be like that, that when God sees this building, when God sees us as people, He sees worship. 
he sees incense rising. And remember that detail from Exodus, morning and evening, which meant all the time. Are we giving God our weakness so he can show off his strength? Good question to ponder. Are you afraid of your weakness? Or are you giving it to God? Right now, think of an area where you're weak. I'm coming into the finish line. I'm about to out. Think of an area where you're weak. Something has happened in your life in the last week. Bad pun, huh? Weak, weak. Something in the last seven days where you've gotten in touch with your weakness again is what I mean to say. Think of that. Can you just give that situation to God and say, Lord, you're going to have to show off. You're going to have to send those flowers cracking through the pavement because right now all I've got to offer you is dry, dead pavement. So I'm giving you that situation. Let's, let's do that this morning. Are we taking hold of the ship's wheel? Whatever is going on individually, corporately, are we taking hold of the ship's wheel? Perhaps a fitting way to conclude, are we trusting in the high priest who's able to save completely? Note that word, completely. Because he lives forever. Amen. Let me pray for you. Turn it to Al. Father, we thank you this morning. You have begun the story. You got this story moving. You didn't step into an ideal situation. And you, don't, you, you, you never do. You stepped into one that was conflicted and contradictory and messy. Here, your people, after being restored from the exile, are still under foreign control. This ungodly pseudo-puppet king, Herod, is still in place. But what does Zechariah do? He kept worshiping. Twice a day, the incense went up to you. Lord, we worship you this morning, whatever may be going on still inside of us or around us. You got the story moving 2,000 years ago. You got the story moving recently for Richard. You've got the story moving for us as a, as a church. We commit ourselves to you today, Lord. We want to be on board with you, grabbing hold of the wheel, offering up the incense, whatever, Lord, you're asking of us for the honor of your name. Amen. Amen. Bless you.